Hello, and welcome to the XXLA Architects Podcast. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's episode is a live recording from September 8, 2019 at SciArc in conjunction with their graduate thesis reviews. I'm joined by the student and now graduate Ning Lui, her advisor Christy Ballier, and distinguished alumnus Barbara Bester. As you can imagine, the day was action-packed with reviews, so Christy and Barbara switch out partway through this conversation. I thought this conversation was really interesting because we get to talk about the experience of the thesis project from the student and the advisor-practitioner perspective. You can also watch the live video feed from this conversation through SciArc's Vimeo channel, and I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Now, without further ado, here's our show. Hi, we're here live from SciArc Spin Room. I'm Audrey Sato, the host of XXLA Architects podcast and an architect. Um, do you want to inter- introduce yourselves? Hi, I'm Ning, and um I'm an MR2 student who just completed my grad thesis with the amazing um, advisor, Christy Ballier. <laughs> That's very kind. Uh, Ning, obviously, wonderful student that I've had the pleasure of working with uh, for the last year. Um, my name is Christy Ballier, and I'm a design faculty member here at SciArc. Um, I also have a small design practice um, called Bear Ballier, uh, located in downtown Los Angeles. Great. And so here we're looking at your model, which is appropriately spinning. (laughs) Would you like to tell us a little bit about your project, Ming? Yes. So um, nowadays it's very easy for us to decode visual images because of the ubiquity of um, image-based media. So we can easily decipher illusory representations like animation, um, stereoscopic images, virtual 3D space. And um, I really wanted to investigate optical trickery and visual illusions to kind of um, play uh, tricks and um, puzzle the modern observer. Great. <laughs> and, and so, um, Christy, I know that we were talking a little bit earlier about the process when a student comes to you with an idea mm-hmm. and how you're able to bring some of your um, experience as a practitioner into guiding the student towards you know, their final thesis project. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, here at SciArc, I, I have the opportunity to teach a range of studios. So I actually had Ning earlier in her curriculum as part of a more comprehensive uh, studio. Um, whereas at, at Thesis, the students can come to you with any idea. It can, it can be an incredibly abstract idea. It does not have to kind of end in the formation of a building, but it certainly can. Um, I tend to attract students, I think, for Thesis that are interested in sort of running their problem, the thing they're interested in working on, uh, through the problem of a building. And, and Ning certainly fit into that category. So she came um, very very well uh, prepared um, with an idea about her observation um, about images, how she perceives them, how she thinks others perceive them, and how she thought architecture um, could could participate in kind of a more volumetric way or a more three-dimensional way. I I guess I throw out the word volumetric just because the research I do in my practice um, 
both speculative and as best I can also in um, kind of built work, is to think about how um, how architecture can be slightly different when it's motivated um, by volume, by the spaces that we occupy, when it becomes three-dimensional from a volumetric perspective as opposed to just from a massing or an object perspective. So I think this project I was super intrigued um, to kind of team up with Ning on because she was coming at it from a very... Um, a very image-based, a very looking at it perspective. And I thought I could help her to think about, well, what would these spaces be like if they really started to kind of puff up and expand? Um, and, and it is spinning, uh, which is, is quite nice for this, but, um, Ning did go out of her way to kind of find a site um, in San Francisco that was next adjacent to a highway, sort of understanding that um, buildings, unlike um, sculptures or other types of three-dimensional objects, have people that approach it at different speeds for different reasons, have different types of attention. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I think uh, it, was, it was wonderful for me to kind of bring some of my experience in volume with her, like, just incredible... Um, attitude about sort of composition and form. Right. And I think, you know, this is a really interesting time um, and, and it could be a very challenging time for students as they're transitioning from these really, um, these obsessions uh, and ideas that they've been investigating in a protected academic environment and then going into the practice. So I wonder maybe, Ming, if you can talk a little bit about um, how, what you're thinking as you move into this transition, and maybe Christy, if you could share some of your own experiences with that as well. Oh, um, well, I definitely agree with Christy. So um, there's so many different ways to kind of start an architecture project, and especially with thesis, um, it's like the very first time you have for, like total control of your design brief and everything. And so a lot of us start off in very um, like abstract ways, maybe with like. Um, an essay or like um, uh, paintings or something. So I think D Christy was really good, definitely at um, kind of like bringing me back and like asking how I can challenge this project spatially, um, especially at the start because um, uh, I was looking at references like Monument Valley, the game, and um, like a lot of uh, Russian constructivist paintings, and I was producing like these actually two D flat images that. Um, they were kind of like these floating objects in space. And then Christy asked me, you know, oh, for your thesis, like, do you want to produce a building? Because, you know, there, there are a lot of, there's a lot of flexibility with, like, what you can do for your thesis at SIARC. And I was like, yes, I do want to design a building. Like, oh, I, I really like architecture. I just totally forgot about that. Sorry. <laughs> and so we kind of, like, started to, uh, and it became so much more interesting, actually, when, like, and um, more challenging and difficult when we actually had to, you know, create a, like, I could massing of, of this and, like, what would this look in three dimensions? And, um, like, going forwards, like, um, when I, obviously, because I do want to proceed and ultimately become, like, an architect and qualify and all of that, um, maybe it would be good to kind of keep this more in mind or, like, to always, you know, I, I think it's good to be inspired by, like, all different types of media and, like, illustrations, but, um, Christy's definitely been really great at like reminding me or like always you know bringing me back to like architecture and like grounding and all of that. <laughs> um, I think early on a, a huge turning point 
I think for Ning was that Florencia uh, Pita, who runs graduate uh, graduate thesis, has this wonderful event at the beginning of the summer semester called Miniatures, where it asks the students to kind of produce a three dimensional um, a three dimensional object that represents their idea, um, and it's it's kind of intentionally not thought of as like a study model or something that's going to become something else, but that it truly is um, something that has a lot of merit in itself. And I think for Ning, that was a huge turning point um, because she actually made, she had been making these beautiful two-dimensional things and she knew she had to make it in the round in a way. So she made these blue pieces of MDF that were really there initially to kind of host her kind of two-dimensional um, image that she made a little bit into a model. And I was like, Ning, that's it. Like you're already, that's already, those pieces of MDF that um, were kind of abstract and that idea could become part of the building. Like for a project like this that is so optically based, in a way you have to develop the background as well. And architecture, I think, is really good at doing both of those things. I mean, when you walk around the halls in this in this building today and in this weekend, you see a lot of buildings that have you know done a lot of work to maybe stand out, which is as it should be, perhaps in a thesis. But architecture, in terms of how it impacts the world, is also a lot of the background of of how we stand out as as inhabitants of a city. And so I just thought she really was that was really a huge um, move for her, I think, towards architecture to sort of, um, I mean, not to be so codi um, codified here, but, you know, I think the, the pink and the yellow, that, that stuff was the thing that Ning came with in spades, let's say. Um, and it was really these elements of kind of the bar-like buildings that um, helped her, I think, to move into an architectural um, direction. Right. I, I mean, I've played Monument Valley, so was it difficult for you to temper the, um, the, the sort of urge to flip the building and, do, you know, mm -hmm. have a little more fun with it in a way that is not really, um, you know, possible with gravity in, in an actual built uh, city? Or was that, like, e an easy transition for you to make? Well, um, it's funny that the model's spinning because I guess, you know, you just swipe on the app and then it rotates. But um, I did actually try to kind of design the building in um, elevation um, to, like, curate these picturesque views. Um, uh, but I was researching, you know, the game, and um, uh, it's uh, filmed in isometric, but um, obviously it doesn't... It's not true in reality. So when um, Ida, the princess, she goes from like one uh, viewpoint to the other, they actually um, make her jump along a path. <laughs> and um, I was, yeah, I love the game, and I think the um, imagery from it is really beautiful. So um, definitely a lot of the graphic style is like what I was very inspired by. But um, uh, what what one of my criticisms was before in um, the miniature event was that. Um, uh, some people said, oh, you don't want it to just be like a one-liner because um, sometimes when you look at these uh, Escher-like drawings, like a Pen Penrose triangle, these kind of optical illusions, um, after like five seconds or ten seconds, you can figure out the trick. So um, how can you push this even further? Like how can you make it something that is interesting to look at uh, for longer than that? And um, I think that's like when you know, shearing forms in different directions and using not just one, um, you know, Penrose 
triangle type of illusion, um, and then introducing like the pixel patterns, and um, also like these uh, extrusions between like 2D and 3D, and also like the ribbon. Um, these are kind of like additional tactics that I implemented. But yeah, I definitely start off with like um, Monument Valley as one of like the main um, references. <laughs> so. Um, you know, it seems really clear to me that the formal language was really heavily explored and really, really beautifully um, uh, put together. And I wonder, did you spend as much time on the project with, you know, issues of site specificity or programmatic sort of concerns with the project? Um, this is uh, another one of the questions I got in my final presentation, actually. And um, so the program is a tech school um, in San Francisco. And um, uh, I, I have uh, drawn up like three sets of plans. And um, because of the massing, uh, we have like the more functional um, office tower block, which is like a double loaded corridor. And um, uh, the interlocking joints between um, the forms serve as like corridor spaces and like um, circulation for stairs. And um, there's a, like a variety of different, you know, here you see like the uh, cantilevered um, glazed appendages, which could be like more interesting study rooms. But, um, you know, and there's like semi-outdoor spaces as well. Um, but like I didn't, I definitely did not start with function at the heart of the project. Um, it kind of developed and like helped me refine certain things about it. Um, and one of the critics actually asked me, you know, um, uh, when you look at the pattern on the building, you can almost tell like the number of floors that are inside it. Um, you know, moving forward, if you were to continue this project, the next question would be like um, more about apertures and like, um, you know, how can you resolve some of these things because the, the windows apertures are drawn in your plan, but they're um, not really all figured out in the building. So like, if I could do this for project for another month or so, you know, <laughs> I would be able to figure out a lot more of these um, details. But um, yeah, I guess it definitely is a challenge to kind of like resolve the entire building as well as, you know, exploring all these like formal qualities as well. Sure. Yeah. But Christy has been really great at trying to like, you know, um, uh, find a balance between these two things. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we talked about a lot was, um, like I said, Ning did spend a lot, of, even though we don't see it here, this model is, you know, was built in a site and included in her presentation, which again is, is not necessary in a thesis. They can decide sort of how much context they um, need or want. Um, but in her case, she actually does have a site model. Um, and I think she did strategically kind of put it next to a highway, but also a pretty dense pedestrian area, sort of recognizing that people were going to be seeing this uh, building, you know, kind of like a billboard from afar that would kind of change as you got closer. And then she has this wonderful animation where they kind of round the corner and the building becomes kind of a blur in your, in your rear view mirror. But at the same time, there are, like if you, it's hard probably um, for, our, for our viewers to see, but at the ground level, she's actually incorporated um, sort of a bit of a, a sequence of events down there that sort of ground the building in very different ways. And for me, I think that was like, that was an interesting moment for her to sort of recognize like, okay, Okay, so if we if we would produce an architecture like this in the world, um, what are some of the consequences? Like, how would that change um, a building? And I think one of the things she really discovered is that, well, it would certainly make a collection of buildings. 
right? But somehow different than a campus, right? It's not a campus um, in that it doesn't have a center. Um, it doesn't necessarily have sort of axial relationships or, um, uh, you know, those types of things. You, you heard her mention something about the picturesque, and I think that... Um, there was more of an attitude about like how does kind of 1960s pop art, um, contemporary sort of visual gaming culture and something like the picturesque kind of come together to um, enliven our cities. Um, and I think that that was all, those, the comp, trying to figure out a combination of those three things was certainly a way that Ning worked to imagine this building um, in a city where people would interact uh, with it and, and kind of find... Um, you know, episodes um, within the project. I always imagine this project is, not only would she have to figure out windows, but there would be a lot of doors in this building. <laughs> there would be a lot of doors in this building. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, 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 what I love about this project is imagining the building spilling into this courtyard and becoming landscape and really um, inviting people in to the towers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I wonder, Christy, um, for you, I know that in doing a lot of academic research mm-hmm. and coming from this world um, where you've really, you know, I really admire that in your practice, you've defined a, um, a very clear way that you approach architecture. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how, how do you mediate or mitigate you know, moving between those two worlds where there's an academic desire to provoke or reinvent, mm-hmm. and then, uh, you know, mediating that between clients who, and, and other people, stakeholders, who may or may not have more normalized desires for a project. Right, right. Um, I, yeah, I'd say my partner Kelly and I are still very much trying to figure that out. Um, I think, though, I mean, I, I've been in love with architecture for a very long time, since it, since a child in a way, since I was a child. And I think that um, that's what maybe helps me to navigate between sort of practice and teaching, because I think in both realms, I have a responsibility to um, help people um, imagine things that they have not seen before. And I think while that's different in the academic context, um, and you know, you're trying to sort of raise the bar and, and teach skills and techniques and all of those things, I think when you're working with a client, um, in an ideal scenario, they've also they've they've come to you for services, right? They need to get a project through uh, permitting, and they they need to provide a coffee shop, um, you know, and, and the the type of projects I've been working on right now are sort of smaller scale. Um, and the client needs all those things, but there are also moments where you hope that they also are looking to you for some level of expertise that you could help them imagine. Um, what is an empty cavity um, as something that they, they, have, they, they know the things they need in it, but they don't necessarily have an image of how those things are going to work together. And so I think that um, if I try to remind myself that my job in teaching and my job in working with clients is to just help them imagine things and to help them have a vision um, that they didn't have before, that makes it easier for me to not have to make such a huge distinction um, in terms of what my responsibility is um, as an architect. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I hope I get to keep doing it for a long time. Uh, it's really nice to be able to do the balance between the two. Um, so, yeah. That's great. Yeah, so um, in the teaching process, um, you know, I think the way that you're talking about your work, you have a partner who you're working with, mm-hmm. you have clients, and 
um, in in some of your research work as well. It's very collaborative. Mm -hmm. And I know, Ning, you were talking earlier that in um, one of your other projects, you were working collaboratively as well. So I think, you know, how, how does that, um, the recognition that architecture has become much more of a collaborative rather than yeah. a singular genius, how, mm -hmm. how has that um, sort of shaped how you approach teaching and how you approach practice, really? Mm -hmm. um, I could maybe field that one and then yeah. send it back to Ning. Sure. Um, I think at Syracure, they work on a lot of team projects, which prepares them, I think, quite well. And um, my first encounter with Ning was a part of a team project. But I think in terms of my, um, my own practice, I did, I teamed up with uh, a fantastic architect, Kelly Bear, um, about four years ago. Um, and she has uh, she has made me a better architect by far. Um, it's, it's amazing to have to, it's amazing and humbling to have to work with another, um, peer and colleague and now partner, um, to, to sort of justify the ideas that, that I have and for us to think together about how we'll bring them into the world and the fact that her and I have to wrestle those things out, um, before we articulate them to others, I think has, um, really helped to sharpen, um, my ideas from just like um, personal ones to ones that um, are mu much easier for me to to bring bring to clients or in the context of teaching. Um, I, I think a huge role of teaching is to begin to take ideas from a personal idea and connect them um, with a discipline and with the profession and, and really be able to understand them in context to um, things around you. And so by working with a partner, um, that just inherently makes that um, harder in the beginning, but then easier as we bring those ideas into the world. Okay. All right. Bye, Christy. Bye. Thank, <laughs> Thank you for yeah. joining us. One more student. <laughs> Hi, Barbara. Hi, how are you? <laughs> good. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to be in the spin room. Yes. So Barbara Bester, principal architect of Bester Architecture and distinguished alum of SciArc's grad program. Correct? Yes. 1992, actually, so quite a while ago. And this is Ning. She's the student whose project we're looking at. Oh, nice oh great. Know. It's like a spinning <laughs> platter of loveliness. <laughs> so yeah. um, what did you do for your thesis at SciArc? My thesis at SciArc was a, an idea about um, new kinds of housing um, built modularly. I think it was right when IKEA had come out, and the idea was like you could you could use the industrial part of this neighborhood in LA called Frogtown, re-inhabit that with a, a, a means of production, and then build these small houses that could add to the density of Frogtown by kind of redrawing boundaries and making backyards and in-between yards and stuff like that, new areas for small-scale housing. It's a kind of weirdly related to what ended up being the small lot housing ordinance in in LA, although I can't say I had anything to do with that per se, but but I was always interested in like how to infill architecture and how you could do it in a way that was sort of incredibly cool, but also sort of affordable and also in my dreams, like a sort of socioeconomic sustenance for the people who lived in that area. Wow. It was very idealistic, but. Frogtown is quite um, busy. It's, it's got lots of like artists, like residences and um, like cafes and it's quite a nice area, I think. Yeah, well, mm. in 1992, it was not so busy. Uh. It was kind of like a, it was, it was worker housing, very small houses, mm -hmm. 
in this sort of bra-shaped kind of strip of land between the river and the and the Riverside Drive and the Five Freeway, mm-hmm. and it was just it was it was just very interesting because like while the river was really interesting and cool, it was mm-hmm. you couldn't get there because there was all these sort of warehouses that were also kind of like not that active. So the idea was to kind of look almost like a, as a an urban design slash architecture slash economic kind of idea of how you could redo that. And in the end, you know, the, the economy did actually redo that. Frogtown's kind of a thriving neighborhood now, and there's mm-hmm. restaurants and people are trying to build kind of interesting house projects there and stuff. So it's kind of fun to be old enough to see, you know, the city change in real time and wow, get inspired by that. Yeah. Yeah, I think earlier we were talking about the ways in which thesis or some of the ideas we delve into in school can really shape our direction in practice. And I wonder, did that inform your Blackbirds project at all? Yeah, I would say there's a somewhat ridiculous corollary, which I didn't realize at the time between what I was doing in thesis and what a lot of my practice became over the years after, because I think it was sort of a an interest in that scale, you know, that, that the smaller scale intervention was a kind of valid area of practice, ended up being something I really did do for quite some time. And then also the interest in like how to make community out of, out of like a traditional single family home context to kind of weave in other layers of dwelling and sort of think about bigger thoughts about what, what that community could achieve. Those are, those are things that really super came to fruition in the Blackbirds project, which was kind of like taking the small lot ordinance typology but tweaking it so it actually made a community um made like interior space that was shared by a lot of people that that was that that ended that's probably one of the more big deal projects I ever have gotten to work on and it was really nice it was also part of that longer thinking about like what how can LA just get denser right yeah it's a really interesting um thing to think about too for me I see a lot of your work as being so graphic and interesting, um, just like eye candy for me as well. Um, I, I mean, you know, really, um, really interesting spatially and everything as well. But everything you talked about with your thesis project was so, um, so much more di- uh, geared towards economics and, and density and, and urban issues that I think that's a really interesting um, uh, sort of juxtaposition. I wonder, were you as well, um, at the same time, exploring with formal ideas? Oh, yeah. I think, I mean, I, I guess the, the, the content of that thesis was very elaborate models and drawings that were um, kind of, uh, let's say, axonometric ways of looking at something like plumbing and turning that into like a column that was sort of like a futuristic column, like not like a Greco-Roman column, but this column of plumbing that would be both a a physical part of space, but also doing a double duty as a function. There's a lot of that sort of, you know, walls with bookcases in them that might move. I was really interested in Lautner at the time and the kind of idea, which I'm still interested in also, but the idea of like sort of mobile pieces of architecture that are kind of multitasking and then become almost more phenomenal because it is a bookcase, but it's also a wall that can move and can then change the space around it. So I, I would say that it, it's funny because I think it, I do tend to describe it. it. It often you end up falling into that that language of like urbanism when you're talking about the scale, but the actual content was probably um, you know I spent a lot of time on on individual pieces 
and I had it, I, I wouldn't say that was a graphics project. Like I wasn't using color as much, although I, it is like the whole thesis was like blue and green and like wood. It was sort of very saturated in color when it, in its form that it took, which was mostly models and drawings. Um, so yeah, so I, I think I've always had a slightly harder time discussing my work in purely formal terms because I kind of come with a lot of baggage of, of an interest in like uh, social theory and stuff too. So, so it's funny how I'm sure you did it when you're working on your thesis, you kind of have to be able to describe it on multiple layers for multiple readers. And that's, that's something that I'm always still working on. I think we all kind of work on that forever. Just how do you get the multiple contents, you know, in the one place? Definitely. Um, I think in my like final presentation, although I'd practiced my um, speech several times, um, uh, I think I could have, you know, um, spoken a bit more about like the building's relationship with San Francisco and like urban issues like that maybe that's where I fell a bit short because they um, followed up by asking more, more questions and like oh do you are you proposing that other buildings in San Francisco should look like this and and then um, uh, I mean I definitely think like maybe if I had um, considered all these issues uh, I could have like said it in a different way perhaps because like I had considered some of those things but um I guess, uh, especially because my project looks so formal, people will question me on that too. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's like it's like this room, the spin room, like learning how to spin your project rhetorically, both in terms of, say, its art content and then also mm -hmm. perhaps it's how this is going to make the world a better place content mm -hmm. is something that we all sort of need to sharpen. Because I think I, I would say that your generation is, in general much more interested actually in like the social justice content of any given project but I think that sometimes in school we're still kind of operating more on a formal level like as if we are in a purely disconnected art context and that that um that abrasion like the kind of split there is something that as soon as you the second you leave school you kind of have to start to work on like how to Add, add a bigger a bigger articulation to because I'm sure the visions are always there in terms of what people are, mm -hmm. are trying to do but it's it's funny how we kind of get trained in the thing that we're doing often in a, almost a craft way and that but but we all have to kind of work hard to make this a larger discussion we can have with like other people in the community mm -hmm. or in the city you know at, a, at an urban level what is so great about you know a graphic kind of Pleasure Palace. I don't even know what your project is, but it looks like a grand pleasure palace that that could that could invite so many different people and be this sort of special moment in time. Mm -hmm. And and learning how to have that discussion is kind mm -hmm. of a whole nother ball game. I feel like it's like as if you had to write an article for the New Yorker suddenly, you know, and you mm -hmm. have to kind of have all the different interviews with the different people and really kind of get this not this content not only in its sort of self rhetorical sense but in this this is like you know Girardelli Square was in the 70s which was a catalyst that changed the you know the major, major part of San Francisco something like that that mm -hmm. you kind of you spin it <laughs> spinning spinning could be like a post-grad seminar that we do or something yeah. which program did you do at Zyark actually I did MARC one three and a half years oh wow it was very fun mm -hmm. it was an insane school at the time I, I, I don't think it's quite as wacky now but it was uh it was in Santa Monica in this sort of funny collection of warehouses. It was very ad hoc. Wow. I had theorists like Joan Kopchak, who 
who started Oppositions Magazine, which was like the theory magazine of the time, and Mike Davis, who wrote City of Courts, which was highly critical, frankly, of formalism and architecture, but also gave us all a bigger perspective on oh. like LA's kind of darker history of oppression <laughs> through architecture. <laughs> so it was really, it was a heady time. So what, what had you studied before um, uh, the MRC one program? I did a visual environmental studies degree. Um, my thesis was paintings, mm. but I was sort of take. I, I went to Harvard as an undergrad, and I was taking um, all the seminars at the GSD. So I was kind of very. I was very. Let's say I was a theory person, mm-hmm. very big on theory, and then I felt like I was getting to be too much of a theory person because I knew I was going to go to grad school later. And I took a year off and went to the AA in London mm-hmm. and just did studio and like a little theory. And that was really crazy and radical. And that's actually what made me come to SciArc because they're like, well, if you want to do this more, you should go there. Don't, don't stay. Don't stay in the boring old East Coast. Wow. That's so interesting. <laughs> best, best choice I ever made. Actually, I studied in London before coming oh, here, did too, you? but I went to Bartlett, oh, yeah. um, but a lot of my friends went to like AA and everything. The schools are nearby, and um, um, yeah, it's definitely more like avant-garde way of teaching, I think, but um, uh, I do think like, you know, to be a creative person, to be an architect, you have to like think outside the box, and um, um, you know, like that's how you get the most imaginative ideas but definitely like thinking about more like societal and urban issues is something that you know I could try spin my project <laughs> into and um, those things are like a huge concern as well well if you think about the the you know the history of avant-garde ideas in in architecture like Kulhas's thesis project at the A, I think was that massive wall project that was kind of a it was a it was a lot of the 70s, even like the people who started Cyrica, it was really radical mm-hmm. critique was what the content was, sort of theoretically. It was really criticizing a status quo of high modernism and kind of like, let's say, white shoe architecture firms by t- often pro- positing ideas that weren't necessarily like a utopian concept, but often not dystopian, but kind of a the extreme project that would then criticize the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that I think is what a lot of different projects do in this thesis group, you know, that you're, it's not necessarily a, you know, fully vetted affordable housing project on, you know, the corner of Pico and Union, but it's a, it's a kind of a like, well, what if, you know, how do we bring pleasure back to space? How do we, how do we, create spaces that may be public that may also be different things to different people you know we're not just reiterating some kind of you know five rules of architecture from Corbusier or the international code of modernism blah 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 thing that leads to superstructures you know that that um I think it is generally an act of resistance to create even a completely playful architecture because it stands in such contrast to what we see around us getting built quite a lot. And I I think the challenge after school is how do you uh, retain that kind of, um, what do you call it, that projective vision content and bring it into the built world so that it does, it, it, it may actually have that greater effect in the long run. And I think that, you know, you have a whole generation of people who are thinking about this differently that will affect the end result of the, you know, built environment that we actually occupy. Yeah, so to wrap up, I think, it, do you want to have any closing comments on, on that topic of how <laughs> we can sort of 
keep our ideas in this type of uh, in this type of difficult uh, profession where we have to mitigate so many factors? Um, I, I guess I, I do. I feel that it would be very useful to work on this issue of spin, and in fact, to use the kind of back and forth with, say, input from other parts of, let's say, the factors that are making the built environment to find find sort of space for this to start to grow in the in the built world. I think, you know, we've already had a, a generation of projects that are kind of more in the pavilion sense, so kind of operating in the art world or sometimes in the public art sense, like Ben Ball and Gaston Noakes, who are also fire grads, are making like these amazing sort of things in the L.A. airport. Um, where it goes into buildings and like the kind of complexity of buildings is going to be the, the next frontier. And I, I do think it is useful to start to work out, you know, whether it be on paper or in writing as well as illustration, how these things can actually function in a way that is improving people's lives. Because that once you have a good argument for this is actually going to improve something, it might change a city, it might change a building, it might be an inexpensive way of creating a kind of phenomenal play area, whatever it is, that those, that, that, um, that sort of interaction with, let's call it the real in parentheses, is really useful. And that that, that is, I think, the part that we kind of have to start to equip ourselves with in a post-academic sense, you know, when you're out of school. That's, that's where a lot of the power lies. And you kind of, if you look around, like a lot of the people who are building stuff that's interesting have figured out a way to argue for these issues that we are all caring about in a way that they can also get someone to essentially pay them to build that in real life. And that, that is sort of, that is, it seems like impossible. It's really not. I think a lot of it is literally uh, rhetorical and kind of um, thoughtful in terms of, you know, being open to thinking about that interaction with you know, how cities work and how buildings get built. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thank you very much. <laughs> Woohoo. And that's our show. I really enjoyed being part of SciArc's spin room. As nerve-wracking as it can be to be taped live, it was really inspiring for me to hear about practitioners who have taken their academic work and really have links to their professional work. I think Barbara's advice about learning to speak about our projects and convince people about why we should build them is so crucial. I'm your host, Audrey Sato, and today's guests were Ning Louie, Christy Ballier, and Barbara Bester. Many thanks to them for participating in this live conversation. I would also like to thank Elena Manfordini and Florencia Pita for inviting me to participate, and Phil Logan and his team at SciArc for doing such a great job with the film and audio recording. You can find me at xx-la.com or at xxlapodcast on social media. Thanks for listening.